First John chapter 3 today. If you'll join me again in that passage. Today the verses we're going to focus on, verse number 16 and verse number 17, primarily on verse number 16. 1 John 3, 16 and 17. We're, we're studying that those things that ought to be daily essentials in the Christian life. We need the reminder that we are to be like Christ. We are to love our brother and we are to live truth. And in order to learn this, we are here in 1 John chapter 3 and working our way through the entire chapter. We have spent four weeks on like Christ. This is our fourth week on love your brother. And starting next week, we're going to spend four more weeks on live the truth. And that way we give it a a thorough going over. Because I think we could use that, can't we? Uh, Reminders are like that. We need that kind of reminder. So, today, verse 16, it says, We know love by this that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. Verse 17, For whoever has the world's goods and sees his brother in need and closes his heart against him, how does the love of God abide in him? It's a good question. We're going to talk about these things here today. Join me in prayer first. Heavenly Father, thank you again for your word, just the privilege we have now as, as your children but also as students of your word, to sit at your feet, that you might teach us. And we need to learn these things, Lord. Not not just an academic exercise, but may it be a very practical one as well. May it have impact in the way we live. Change us, Lord, for we know that's your will. We know that's what you're doing, and we want to be part of the process as you make us like Christ our Savior. So teach us today, Lord, and and work in our hearts and just show us over and over again how much you love us in this. And we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. Did you notice something as we uh, just looked at these verses here? John 3.16. 1 John 3.16. Isn't that great? Now, you think of those that were John 3.16. You go back to the Gospel. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, right? Whosoever believeth in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. See how nicely it relates to this verse? Look at it here. We know love by this, that he laid down his life for us. In its essence, it's saying the same thing, isn't it? When you see that comparison, I, I kind of like that comparison. And how well these two go together. But I do want to tell you, there is no secret code to the numbers 3 and 16. Alright? Just because John put them that way. Now, some people say, you know, maybe there's a secret code and we ought to develop this. Well, I went through the entire New Testament this week, just for fun. Looked up every 316 verse. And you'd be surprised at how many of them do not say anything like this. Romans 3... 16. Destruction and misery are in their paths. That doesn't mesh too well, does this? Uh, you could find the same with James 3.16. It talks about jealousy and selfish ambition. Uh, you could go into 
2 Peter 3.16, and he's talking about those who are untaught and unstable and distort the scriptures. And one of my favorites is this one, Revelation 3.16. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. So obviously we're not going to write a book today on 3.16, are we? Not some secret code or anything like that. Matter of fact, the numbers that you read on these pages, they weren't put in the scriptures until somewhere around, well, the 1500s is when they finally had numbers on verses. In the 1200s, they had numbers on chapters. Can you imagine before that, pastor get up and say, well, we're going into 1 John. And then you just have to have the whole book. <laughs> you don't know where he's going to start. I'm glad for the numbers. I, it makes it easier for us to communicate uh, and reference one another. But if we're looking for magical numbers today to somehow come up with a system to make us better believers, you're not going to find a number system here. But what we are studying is what it means to be like Christ. And that ought to change our lives. And that's our study here. Be like Christ. And as we have seen, and if you're not convinced of this yet, uh, I haven't done a very good job at expressing this, but there is visible evidence that you are becoming like Christ. Visible evidence. And what this text says, it is in loving your brother. That's a visible evidence. Some people, I know, they, they would rather have some other criteria to, to use as evidence that they are becoming like Christ. They would say, hey, why don't we use uh, just the fact that we love God? Why can't that just be sufficient to say I love Christ or I'm like Christ is because I love God. Now, that's a beautiful thing. We should do that, right? We should love God. And yet, this is what we've read already in 1 John 4, verse 20. If someone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. That's not going to work then, is it? Just to say, the only visible evidence I'm becoming like Christ is I love God. If you don't love your brother as well, he calls us a liar. That's strong, isn't it? So we can't use that, but other people may say, well, how about some visible evidence this way? Why don't we just use worship as the, the identifying mark that we are like Christ? The, the way we worship, let's that be the, the visible expression of being like Christ. And I remember another passage that Jesus taught, Matthew chapter 5, verse 23, 24. Therefore, if you're presenting your offering at the altar, isn't that worship? Part of it, right? In the Old Testament, that was their worship. They're bringing their offering to the altar. And there, remember that your brother has something against you. Leave your offering there before the altar. Really? Go. First be reconciled to your brother. And then come and present your offering. You know, that's going to mess up a lot of worship services. If people take that seriously, they're to come, and they're standing here, they're about to offer worship. Boy, isn't that the visible evidence that I'm like Christ? says, no. Matter of fact, it's second in this picture to your relationship with your brother. He says, just leave it there, go and make things right, and then come back and finish your worship service. You think God takes uh, loving your brother seriously? He puts it over worship. He puts it over even that love of himself. 
That's what he said in these two verses. We would prefer a lot of things over loving our brother. We would prefer other avenues, perhaps. Uh, but Scripture does not release us from the responsibility of loving our brother. It does not do that. And that's what we've noticed in this. Let's go to another very familiar passage, just for a moment. Uh, Luke chapter 10, verse 25. I'm going to use the same story that Jesus told here. We call it the Good Samaritan. And I want to express a few thoughts from here and set up a, an outline, if you will, for the section we're going to study today. Uh, Luke chapter 10 starts in verse number 25. Now, I know he's asking uh, about a neighbor here. Now, just for, for the sake of what I'm thinking as I work through here, a neighbor, yes, uh, we can reference a brother perhaps in a similar concept, but here he starts the story. And a lawyer stood up, put him, that's Jesus, to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And he said to him, What is written in the law? How does it read to you? And he answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. Who said that? Well, you said God did, right? It's in the law. But who just now said it in the text? The lawyer did. All right? The lawyer just said that so nicely. And Jesus says to him in verse 28, You have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. But wishing to justify himself, he said to Jesus, And who is my neighbor? Jesus replied and said, and this is where our story comes in, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho and fell among robbers, and they stripped him and beat him and went away, leaving him half dead. And by chance a priest was going down the road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. Likewise, a Levite also, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, who was on a journey, came upon him. When he saw him, he felt compassion, and came to him and bandaged up his wounds, pouring oil and wine on them, and he put him on his own beast and brought him to an inn and took care of him. On the next day, he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper and said, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, will I return? when I return, I will repay you. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell into the robber's hands? And he said, The one who showed mercy toward him. And Jesus said to him, Go and do the same. Now, go back to verse number 27. Do you think, as Jesus answered what that man said in verse number 27, do you think that Jesus was teaching another route to heaven? What did he tell the man? If he did these things, he will live, right? He said, no, wait a minute. I thought uh, there was only one way to heaven. Well, that is absolutely true. That is absolutely true. What was the man told to do, and what did the man recite so easily? You shall love the Lord your God, right? Love the Lord your God. How do you love God? Let's examine the thought just for a minute. How? 
Well, I'll start with this. The nature of that love ought to reflect what we call agape love. That's the word. Agapao is the verb for loving God. That is completely, sacrificially, devotedly, with no expectations of reciprocation. That's the kind of love that we are called to address toward God. Now, this is kind of uh, alarming, maybe, and maybe uh, kind of sets us back one step, because, or maybe it's just me, sometimes we love God for what we get from God. Would you love God if you got nothing from Him? I mean, we already know what He gives us, right? A brand new day. You look outside and you enjoy that. Uh, we get His mercy every morning. Great is His faithfulness. You go through the whole list. He just gives and gives and gives and gives and gives, right? Now, what kind of giving is He giving to us? Agape kind of love, right? He gives to us in that fashion. And this is the very same verb used here, that you shall love the Lord your God in such a way as if, you received nothing, but you only wanted to give. That's strong, isn't it? That kind of strikes me a little bit right in the core of what I do. Because most of the time it's reciprocation. How many of us love like this in nature? Well, that's just part of it. What about the manner in which we love? What does he tell him in this? You shall love the Lord your God with what? You see the list? All your heart, all your soul, all your strength, all your mind. How much is that? That's pretty incredible, isn't it? Now, how, how well are we doing on that? You have that day when you were almost close? <laughs> Love the Lord your God with all these things. You say, whew, that's pretty intense too, isn't it? To love Him like that? How long do we love him like this? Well, it's kind of hidden in the verb tense, which we don't have the joy of that so much in English, but in Greek it's so visible. It's like, oh, there it is. Present tense, but it's also an imperative, which means it's a command to be doing this forever. No stopping. No stopping. No letting back. No taking a day off. Never ending. Loving the Lord your God in that fashion where you're not expecting anything back, completely with everything you have, forever without stopping. Is this pretty intense? <laughs> Love the Lord your God. Now, one of the commentaries said this. There's only one trouble with the lawyer's answer. No one's ever done this. Or can ever do what the law says and lays down toward God, man always slips on this, and to slip once is to fail. So yeah, I remember that verse in James too. He who keeps the whole law and yet stumbles in one point is guilty of what? The whole thing. I said, okay, that is pretty strong. That's what it tells us to do. Uh, love him in that nature, in that manner, in that duration. And then, once you start to see that working and doing what it's supposed to do, 
Guess what you're supposed to do with your neighbor? Do you see it? It's toward the end there. And your neighbor as yourself. Your neighbor what? What are you supposed to do with your neighbor? Love them. Did he change verbs? No, he did not. Uh (laughs) Uh-oh. You know what human reaction is? I can't do this. And there's something beautiful in that for a human who's looking for a way out. Uh, Our tendency is to say, I can't do this, so therefore I am not responsible for it. We like that loophole. If I can't do it, I'm not responsible. Uh, So I'm going to ask you some questions here today. Only two, really. If all this is so, this this kind of love is set before us, and our tendency is to say we can't do it, uh, why then does Jesus continue to command us to love our brother? I could take you through the scriptures, but I've been doing that for three weeks. In John, here and there, and all the other places, he keeps telling us to love our brother, right? Why does he keep commanding us to do that? Why is that still there? And... How is it possible that we can do what he's commanded us to do? How is that possible? We're going to explore both of those in our passage here today in 1 John 3, verse 16. 1 John 3, 16. We know, love by this, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. Now, the first question, how can, or why does Jesus continue to command us to love our brother? And I'll give you several answers. First off is this. He has shown us what this love looks like. Hasn't he? He has shown us what this love looks like. He laid down his life for us. You see it in the verse too, don't you? He laid down his life for us. There's a lot of wonderful things we teach concerning the, the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, and what it means to, to know Christ as Savior. And we go through a whole list of things, from sin and the penalty of sin, and, and uh, what Christ has done for us, and how we believe, and, and the results of that belief is eternal life. We have all these things theologically we step into. But it still comes down to a simple picture of he laid down his life for us. The crucifixion. The crucifixion. The act itself. He laid down his life for us. When he was speaking in John 15, verse number 13, these are the words he said to his disciples. Greater love has no one than this that what? Yes. One laid down his life for his friends. And within hours, Jesus did that very thing, didn't he? Laid down his life for his friends. Now, it is entirely essential that someone would die for sin. The wages of sin is death. That's, that has to happen. There, there's no other way around it. The justice of God calls for it. That's his law. And the soul that sins, it shall die. And that's what scripture tells us. But our problem is we couldn't do it. Oh, I know we can die. (laughs) That's not an issue there. But paying for the penalty, the, the kind of death he's talking about is eternal in nature. 
And this is what's frightful about this whole concept. And it really ought to make us some of the, the greatest evangelists the world has ever seen. Because no single human being can pay that penalty. Eternal death is eternal, isn't it? That's not five minutes in the lake of fire, that ought to cure them. <laughs> That's not the answer. You can't say, well, maybe if we give them a short duration down there, that'll straighten them out. Eternity isn't long enough because we can't do enough. The only way to pay for it is to be perfect. And you know what? We're not. I always use this as somewhat of a, of a picture for you. But if you uh, are shooting free throws at a basketball uh, game and you shoot the first one and make it, they'd say, hey, boy, they're pretty good. One for one. You shoot the second one and make it. They're two for two. Say you go throughout the game and you shoot ten shots and you make the first nine. What is your percentage? That's still 100%. What if you miss the next one? You're now at 90. How many more shots will it take to get back to 100%? You never will. You know what's unfortunate? We sin so early in life. We've already messed up the percentage. And we're sitting here saying, boy, I wish I could have that one back. But, you know, here's our problem. It's not just one thing, but we've made a big stack of it, haven't we? How can we ever pay for such a thing like that? See, that's why eternal separation from God is the penalty. Because eternally we can never do it. That's why I like grace and the work of Christ so much. Because he didn't need to pay for his sin, did he? He's perfect. And because of that, he knew that the only way that we could ever be redeemed and rescued was if that penalty was paid, and he paid it, didn't he? He took our place. He died that death that we deserved. That's, that's, that's incredible to me. But he did it. He did it. And he didn't have a grudge. But he did it out of love. Isn't that what John is telling us here? He laid down his life for us. That's love. That's what John says. That's love. I think of uh, the passage in Isaiah 53, one of my favorite sections. Surely our griefs he himself bore. Our sorrows he carried. We esteemed him stricken, smitten of God and afflicted. Even our attitude was bad. He was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening of our well-being fell upon him, and by his scourging we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. But the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. Why did he do that for you and me? Because he loves us, right? Because he loves us. There's a song that's been going through my head for several days now, and I thought I'd even try to pick it out on the piano this morning. He left the glories of heaven, knowing his destiny was a lonely hill called Golgotha, there to lay down his life for me.
You know the chorus? If that isn't love, the ocean is dry. There's no star in the sky, and the sparrows can't fly. If that isn't love, then heaven's a myth. And there's no feeling like this, if that isn't love. We can try to express that so many different ways. But he expressed it in one act. He laid down his life for us. That's what John points out. Now, you read that, and you hear that, and you know that. Are you convinced that he loves you? Are you convinced of it? When you read it, and see it, and understand it? Are you convinced that he loves you? Some of you are not sure. You are convinced, aren't you? That's an act that shows us he loves us. Now, let's talk about that kind of love and that act. What is the nature of that love? Is it not that same agape we're learning and we're told we're supposed to love God with and the kind of love we're supposed to have for our brother? Wasn't it completely sacrificial? Wasn't it completely devoted? Wasn't it... Ready? Without expectations of reciprocation? I want you to to grasp something, and I'm trying to grasp it myself. The world would say, well, isn't that kind of a risky thing to do? To, to, To give yourself in such a way that you would die and still leave man with the option to choose or not choose. Think of that. The Bible teaches election, yes, I believe that with all my heart. But it also says at the same time, whosoever will may come, true? I'm not going to be able to reconcile both of those, even justify them very easily. But I do know God said it. And he's quite capable of handling that, so I don't worry about that. I'm just trying to express something I think is quite incredible. The sacrifice of Christ, he left for man to accept. Now, with such a cost being paid, you would think, why doesn't he just demand them? Why doesn't he just force them? That, that's the beauty of this love. He's done this, knowing that he could just as easily have been rejected for it, as received for it. Even scripture goes to say that there are many on the broad road that leads to destruction. And there are few on the narrow road, few that find it. Say, wow, that's quite an incredible thing. But that's the nature of true love, you see. The nature of agape love, it gives without expectation of reciprocation. That's the kind of love he's given to us. That's awesome to me. It's also the same kind of love that he's done it with all, right? We went through this picture before. The manner of of this kind of love is with all the heart, with all the soul, with all the strength, with all the mind. What didn't Jesus take to the cross with him? How much of his life did he lay down? It says, he laid down his life. For us. That was complete, wasn't it? It was a complete giving of himself. Not part of it, not some of it, but all of it. 
Are you convinced he loves you? The nature and the manner are both these kind of loves. How about the duration of his love? Let's talk about this. Because that commentary I read to you a few minutes ago said, no one ever did this or ever can do it. And I said, you know what? You're wrong. Because somebody did do it. Who was that? The Lord Jesus Christ. He did do this. He loves us. And His love does not fade. It does not run out of speed. Or it doesn't run out of gas. Or it doesn't... uh, uh, get evaluated according to how you woke up this morning. Time changes don't bother his love. What can separate us from the love of God? You know the list. It's in Romans chapter 8. The answer is nothing, right? Nothing can. This is the kind of love he has for us. Are we convinced of that? He laid down His life for us. That's what John is telling us. So we see it. We see this love of His in its full nature, a sacrificial love, in its full manner, a complete love, in its full duration, it's forever. That's what we see. You see it too? That's what John starts with in this verse. He says, this is the kind of love that he has shown to us. And he says something quite remarkable as he begins the phrase, we know love by this. See it there in verse 16? We know love by this. That, that's, that's the, believe it or not, that's the experiential kind of knowing. We have come to know this love. We have learned to know this love. We are growing in this love because the experience is before us every day, isn't it? More and more we're getting convinced. Would you say you're more convinced of His love now than you were when you were first saved? I hope so, because you should be growing in your knowledge of His love. We are are experiencing more and more, we're learning more and more, we're knowing more and more, and we're coming to a complete knowledge of that. That's our goal. What he's simply saying is, there's no room for doubt anymore. No room for doubt. We know love by this. Somebody says, what's love look like? You know what to do now. Point to Jesus Christ. This is what love looks like. This is what we know about love. So I want to ask you the question again. Why does Jesus continue to command us to love our brother? He showed us what it looks like, right? He showed us what it looks like. He laid down his life for us. And we are called to be like who? Him. Does that include loving as he loved? (laughs) He didn't say, well, I I want you to be every way like me except in the love department. Right? No. He, He means to be like Him. And if He loved this way, guess what our call is? To love that way. And here's something else I, I share with you. When we are commanded something, and we are, in this especially, when we are commanded something, and we do not do it, what do you call that? I heard the word. Disobedience. Is that a good thing? What, we have a three-letter word for that, don't we? 
It's not wrath. That's four. It's sin. Sin. Any command we do not do is sin. He who knows what is right to do and does not do it to him it is sin. Scripture tells us that. Alright, what have we learned from 1 John? Especially verse number 6. Look at verse 6. The one who is practicing sin is of the devil. Oh, that's verse 8, sorry. Go back to 6. No one who abides in him sins. No one who abides in him sins. Now, we walk through this very carefully, but if we are abiding in Christ, and we are doing His will, then we're not disobedient, right? Guess what we're not doing? Sin. Make sense all of a sudden? It's like, oh, okay, I get it. So here's the equation. When we say we can't love our brother, what we're saying is we won't abide in Christ. Right? Because when you abide in Christ, you will do what He calls you to do because you're like Him. When we say we can't love our brother, we're really saying we won't abide in Christ. So why does Jesus continue to command us to love our brother? It's obvious now, isn't it? Because everything in our system wants to fight that. But we must be like Christ. So we need that. We need that. The second question related to that then, and you already know the answer, is how is it possible that we can do what he's commanded to us. Abiding is the key. And here's a principle I I do believe. I believe every command in Scripture given to us is possible to obey. Every single one. And I'll tell you why I think that. Because abiding in Christ is the only answer for it. I cannot keep one commandment on my strength. By my will... In my wisdom, I can't do it. But who can keep all these things? Jesus Christ. What can't he do? You see, if I am walking in him, if I'm abiding in him, then I am able to do this only because it is his power, it is his wisdom, it is his strength that makes it possible. So he gives the commands, but he doesn't just say, now you go figure out how to do it. He gives the commands and says, now trust me and I'll do it through you. Abide in me and I will show you how this works. And I can make it do. Because I can love because he loves me and he's in me. So whose love am I sharing? His love. You see a picture developing here? Why we must depend on Him. Why we must walk with Him. I love because it's His love. It's His ability to do it. He commands us to do it. We need to do what He is doing. What He wants us to do. What He wants to do through us. For apart from Him, I can do nothing. But with Him, I can do all things. That's what the difference is. So where are we this morning? When it comes to loving our brother, he gives us this command. And now we know he expects it of us. That's the funny thing about commands. There's expectations you do it. Try it this afternoon. 
Work on your children or grandchildren this way. Tell them to do something, and then don't expect them to do it. Guess what you're going to get? Nothing. Right? You tell them to do something, and you have expectations, don't you? Is God justified with every command he's given with an expectation that we do it? Is God justified when he gives these to expect us to do it? I think so. So, he's given us all these commands, and he says, now, trust in me. You can do all things through Christ who strengthens you. Now, say that very carefully. I'll say it to you. I can. I can. Joshua and Carrie had the same teacher in third grade. They were together in third grade at a Christian school. She had one rule in the classroom. You will not say, I can't ever in my classroom. You know how many weeks it took for them to get out of the mode of saying, I can't? That's hard. Try it. Make it a rule in your house for a minute. A minute? <laughs> for a week? For a, how long will it take before you realize, I, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Is that important? Very important. We know love by this, that he laid down his life for us. And, there's an and there. It's not a period. He laid down his life for us. And, that means whatever is going to follow here, it's part of the sentence. It's a continuation of what goes before it. In other words, the sentence is not complete without the second part. Any more than that command to the, the lawyer, there, the Samaritan story. It wasn't complete without the second part. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind, and love your neighbor. Right? This is part of it. It's not complete without the second part. See, the definition of love is not complete unless it includes loving our brother. That's the impression, and that's the statement that this entire passage is telling us. It's a true test, if you will. The evidence that we are becoming like him, if we are like him, we will act like him. If we are like him, we will think like him. If we are like him, we will love like him. Right? Okay. You know what? I'm stomping all over myself. I hope you realize that. You don't feel like I'm here smacking you, huh? I'm going to go home bruised. Just reading these passages. Because I know this too is speaking about me and how much I am like him. The point of this verse, back up to verse number 10 and you'll see it here too. By this, the children of God and the children of devil are obvious. Anyone who does not practice righteousness is not of God. Anyone who does not love his brother is not of God. That's the same phrase he's using here. So, the issue of sin is in this. We dealt with that. The issue of love is in this. We've dealt with that now. These two things are the evidence of your walk with Christ. So, John asks a logical question. Verse number 17. I've left this off. 
Not, not on purpose so much, but I want you to see something. Whoever has his world's good and sees his brother in need and closes his heart against him, how does the love of God abide in him? And people start to say, what's he going to ask of me now? Because all of a sudden you think, well, you know, I've got extra car at home. Is he going to ask for the car? He start going through this list and things. People, they see that verse and that's immediately what they do. His world's goods and give to his brother in need and so on and so forth. I'm going to make it simpler for you. Because if I tried to describe verse 17, you're going to look for a loophole. At least I'll try to find one. We, we try to find a way around this whole scheme of, of that. So I, wa- I want to share this much with you. What are the world's goods compared to your life? Which one's more valuable to you? The world's goods or your life? Most people would say, well, my life is much more valuable to me than my goods. Let the goods go. I'll keep my life. What were you told to give up in verse 16? Aha. You know, if you can handle verse 16 and give up your life, what difference does it make what verse 17 is asking you to do? It's very small compared to verse number 16. We ought to lay down our lives. We ought to lay down our lives. We see that for the brethren. And then we wrestle over verse 17. (laughs) What am I supposed to give? You're supposed to give your life. That's just the pattern of Christ's love in you. That's a pattern of you being like Him. We love in that full nature of a sacrificial love. Because that's the way He loves. We love in the full manner of completely, because that's the way He loves. We love in the full duration of forever, because that's the way He loves. That's what we're called to do. It's powerful, isn't it? It's powerful. And I, again, I say this, I've done it before. I don't know how that applies in your life right now, and what you're dealing with, and who you're wrestling with, perhaps. But the Lord knows. And I know this truth is the truth we all need to hear. And we all need to grow in. And so we all will go before that throne right now and talk to the Lord who can do it. Join me in prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. It is strong. It is strong. You don't mean just to tickle our ears this morning, Lord. You mean to crush our wills, to change our minds, to soften our hearts. This is major surgery that you're doing. And Lord, we know it's right. We know it's good. We want to be like Christ. And I pray, Lord, that you help us understand this part of it too that you may shape us to be like Him, even in the department of love, that we may learn to love our brother. That's a hard thing to ask for, Lord, for it's going to change us. It's going to challenge us in every aspect of the nature of that love, the manner of that love, and the duration of that love. It's going to test us, Lord. And thank you for your mercy. We don't want to forget that, and we certainly can't do it without that. For you are so patient with us and so faithful to us that you will see this done. 
We pray that your, your work might uh, be accomplished in us. As your word never returns to you void, may your work also be seen in us. And give us cause to rejoice as we start to bear the image of our Savior, the one who loves us so much that he died for us. Teach us what that love is, we pray. And help us in Jesus' name. Amen.